Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister says there's no plan to share any budget or fiscal update anytime soon. A budget is usually something that projects what's going to happen in the Canadian economy for the next 12 months and right now we're having a, a, a lot of difficulty uh, establishing with any certainty what's going to happen in the next 12 weeks. The border with the United States may stay closed until June 21st. We just can't risk it and when, when the time comes, uh, when we get clearance from our chief medical officer and uh, the health table, uh, then we'll, we'll open our arms and, and uh, welcome uh, everyone around the world, but not right now. Uh, just, we cannot chance it. And a new poll finds a majority of Canadians don't believe China has been transparent about its handling of the pandemic. The numbers in the Angus Reid poll were pretty stark. 85% of people unhappy with the way China behaved. Only 14% think positively about China. It's Thursday, May 14th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thanks for being with us. Morning, Mark. The Prime Minister is saying that there isn't a plan yet to produce a budget or provide any kind of fiscal update soon. I know a lot of people, while accepting the fact that the government has had to spend money, uh, huge amounts of money in a number of areas, to protect Canadians, to shore up the economy, that sort of thing, that there are rising concerns about the size of the deficit uh, and how we're all how we're going to pay it back eventually, uh, what, what this is going to mean for Canada's fiscal future. So does the Prime Minister uh, and does the Finance Minister owe Canadians an update of some kind, and what are the implications of all of this? Well, I think they do owe Canadians an explanation. I think there should be a, a fiscal plan out there. That's certainly the view of the... The parliamentary budget officer who, who was questioned about this uh, at the Finance Committee the, the other day, and when he said, I think there should be a plan because it would instill confidence in Canadians and let them know where we, exactly where we are, uh, Wayne Easter, who's the chair of the Finance Committee, said, I hope people upstairs are listening, suggesting that um, a lot of MPs, including Liberal MPs, agree with that view. I think the difficulty for the government is it doesn't quite know where some of these programmes are going to land yet, or when, when they're going to, more importantly, when they're going to end. Um, we know already that the wage subsidy program, which was which was uh, due to end in early June, is now going to be extended. We don't know how long it's going to be extended for, but obviously there are cost implications to that. The thing that worries me, or, or concerns me at least, is that um, the emergency response benefit is due to end on June the 6th. And yet there are 7 million Canadians receiving the CERB, $2,000 a month. And I think the government's expectation was that there would be nowhere near that number. They expected a lot more companies to be employing under the wage subsidy. And it turns out there are only, only, I say only, but there are fewer than they expected, 1.7 million Canadians being covered by the wage subsidy. When you look at what the, the money they allocated, they allocated far more money for the wage subsidy. And yet those numbers, those people have not migrated over from the CERB to the wage subsidy yet. Right. And if they don't, by June the 6th, is the government going to cut off the CERB? I don't think it, it, I don't think it will, and I don't think it can. And that has got massive spending implications. I think the government's problem is that the, the, the spending implications for continuing the CERB are massive. 
And therefore, trying to put out some kind of fiscal plan ahead of time uh, is going to, before they've actually made a decision on whether to expand it or extend it, is going to be almost impossible. So there's the budget uh, or a fiscal update, which is which is just a document that's describing uh, and providing forecasts about where we're going. Then there's the reality of the situation, which doesn't change regardless of whether there's a document or not. Um, what does that reality look like going forward? Are we talking about deficits of uh, $250 billion and, and growing? Right. Well, this, I mean, it's obviously a very fluid situation. The parliamentary budget officer, when he was asked the other day, said that the $252 billion forecast that he's already given is a very optimistic scenario. Now, he delivered that on April the 24th, and there have clearly been major spending announcements since then by the government. So it's, it seems unlikely that we're going to be limited to $252 billion. Uh, he, he also said when he was asked that he thinks that the national debt will rise beyond $1 trillion the first time. You know, these are staggering sums. Talking to people in the financial community the other day, uh, it sounded like that uh, Canada's AAA credit rating may be under threat. Because when you, the credit rating agencies look at Canada, it's always been deemed to be very politically stable, a, a stable place to invest and gets the highest credit rating, which allows the government to borrow money at rock-bottom rates, which is what a lot of these programs are about. I mean, the program they announced the other day for for large employers wasn't a bailout program, it was a loan program predicated on the fact that the government can borrow money extremely cheaply and then lend it to corporations that were were not able to, to, to borrow that kind of money from their normal lenders. But that credit rating may be under risk because the credit rating agencies look at Canada as a whole. It doesn't just look at the federal government. It throws in the the debt of the provincial governments too. And the provincial governments have racked up deficits of around $100 billion this year collectively. And if you throw in $252 billion, you're at $350 billion, which is 20% of the combined GDP. Now, National Bank Financial suggested that is credit rating downgrade territory. Wow. And a credit rate, and it's not just bragging rates. This is not just about Canada having a, a shiny AAA rating. It has implications for the cost of borrowing all through the financial system. So if the federal government rating is reduced, it's more expensive for the federal government to borrow, but also for, for banks and for corporations. And the, the potential there is a ripple effect almost a negative feedback loop going through the economy whereby it's tougher for banks to borrow so they lend less to households or they make it more expensive to lend to households. Uh, that hits, uh, they do the same for corporations. That hits the, the stock market. I mean, this could potentially be long-term bad news. Now, talking to credit rating agencies, one downgrade is not going to make a world of difference to the to the borrowing rate for for a country as stable as Canada. But if these numbers continue to be, uh, to continue to grow and we get continual downgrades, then this has got major implications for the next generation. And we get towards a scenario whereby, where we were in the mid-90s, where Canada was almost on the verge of looking for a bailout from the International Monetary Fund. 
I'm not suggesting we're close to that yet, but we do have to spend responsibly. And I think some of the spending decisions this government has been making could be deemed irresponsible. You know, for example, the uh, the money for seniors that was handed out on Monday. You know, clearly seniors are means tested already because if you're over 65, you get the old age security payment. If you're a low income senior and you earn less than 18,600, you get a guaranteed income supplement. And it seems to me that the bailout money that was handed to seniors the other day should have been directed entirely towards the guaranteed income supplement recipients, those low income seniors, and not towards seniors, many of whom took to social media saying, we don't need this money. Hmm. So I think the government has to be a little bit more responsible in the way it spends, or we're going to get into a situation where the deficit is so whopping that we get downgraded, and this creates issues of intergenerational fairness for the next generation. All right, let's talk quickly about a couple of other topics. Uh, First of all, there are reports that the Canada-U.S. border could remain closed to all but essential traffic until June the 21st. Uh, Given what's happening in the United States, given the restrictions generally on travel, does this make sense, do you think? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think many Canadians are worried about this. We we noticed huge spikes in traffic on our website when we wrote stories about the border. So clearly Canadians are concerned that that the border may be opened up. I mean, the, the, the infection rate in the U.S. per capita is twice what it is in Canada. So clearly there are concerns that if you open that border, there is going to be a a spike in COVID cases in Canada. It sounds like a deal is in the offing. Um, Speaking to PMO last night, they were saying, yeah, negotiations are still ongoing. We don't have a date yet. But it would seem to make sense to do this on a month-to-month basis. The current deal expires on May 21st. So, you know, June 21st for another month of extension would, would seem to be sensible. All right. And uh, a new poll finds that the majority of Canadians don't believe China has been transparent about how it handled the coronavirus. Uh, There have been comments by everyone from diplomats to uh, pundits over the last few days about China's role and what Canada should be doing about it. Uh, What what should Canada say right now about China? Is is there a job that needs to be done? Does do we need to hold China to account right now? Consensus. There's rarely a consensus in Canadian politics, but there seems to be a consensus now that China does have to answer for its actions. Even the Prime Minister was hinting at that uh, yesterday, and he's been very cautious on China, given the fact that uh, the two Michaels are still in detention there. Um, I think that the numbers in the Angus Reid poll were pretty stark. 85% of people unhappy with the way China behaved, only 14% think positively about China. And, uh, you know, I remember back in 2013, 2014, I remember going to China and thinking, you know, this is a huge opportunity for Canada. They want what we're selling. The prospects for a free trade deal, for example, were really high. Um, Things were going pretty well. And the number on similar polls at the time was higher than 50%. Nearly 60% of Canadians thought well of China at the time. You know, that number has absolutely tumbled since then. It was somewhere around 30% at the turn of the year because of the, 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 the detentions. It's now fallen in half from that point. So I think that, uh, you know, with Dominic Barton, who is the ambassador in Beijing now, says that he's been drinking the Kool-Aid for too long and that uh, 
China's behaviour requires explanation. Um, I think when, when Barton starts talking in, the, in that way, and, and also the Prime Minister, who's been very pro-China since he came into to office, start uh, turning, then I think we've, we really have seen a sea change in opinion in Canada. All right, John, great to have your thoughts on all of this today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. I think it's clear that there are many questions for countries around the origins uh, and behavior in early days on uh, the COVID-19 situation, particularly questions for China. Now here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At globalnews.ca, Matthew Fisher argues Canada should join other Western leaders standing up to China. Fisher writes, A coalition of Western nations has been coalescing to confront China diplomatically with the intent of filling the global leadership gap left by Donald Trump. Canada is the only major Western country that is not part of this project. The huge chasm left by Trump's absence from the world stage represents a chance for other countries such as Canada to pick up the slack on the most important international issue since the Second World War. In the Toronto Star, Kate Jamet calls on attempted border crossers to stay home. Jamet writes... Between March 22nd and May 3rd, the Canada Border Services Agency stopped 2,951 people from crossing into Canada from the U.S. The most common stated reason for travel was tourism or sightseeing. Now is not the time to gawk at Niagara Falls or marvel at the scenic beauty of Banff. Now is not the time for our government to offer vague assurances about engaging in constructive dialogue with the U.S., Now is the time to state unequivocally that the Canadian border remains closed to all but essential travel. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin argues, sealing off provinces from each other borders on pandemic paranoia. Martin writes, New Brunswick has police 24-7 on its boundaries. Nova Scotia is aggressively managing its boundaries against potential COVID-carrying visitors, while Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland have both raised the drawbridges against arrivals from the rest of Canada. While not to downplay the importance and effectiveness of the stay-home messaging, it's troubling to see this country fracturing along COVID-19 containment lines. We are supposedly one country, not ten, bound together in good times and bad. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Bank of Canada will release a report on the health of the Canadian financial system today. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, it will be interesting to see what the bank identifies as the biggest problems facing the system. Mark, at 10.30 a.m., Stephen Polas, the governor of the Bank of Canada, will release the bank's annual financial systems review. The review is a look at the state of health, or what the economists call the vulnerabilities of Canada's financial system. In more normal times, like last year, the review looked at things like household debt or slumping house prices. But this year, it's hard to imagine where the Bank of Canada will start. Over the past two months, almost every single economic indicator in Canada has broken records. A month ago, the bank was already predicting the economy would shrink between 15 and 30 percent. The bank is pouring tens of millions of dollars into the economy to buy off provincial and corporate debt to keep liquidity or cash flow in the economy. Personal incomes have plunged. Stats can reveal last week that another million Canadians lost their jobs in April. And among those working, 2.5 million Canadians have seen their hours cut. 
consumer spending and confidence has cratered. Personal debt and bankruptcies have nowhere to go but up. And federal and provincial governments are incurring record levels of debt to help individuals and companies weather the crisis. So, Mark, it will be interesting, fascinating, and no doubt sobering to see what Canada's central bank and top economists have to say about the state of our financial system. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister is expected to give his daily briefing on the coronavirus situation, and Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchette will continue his virtual tour of Quebec. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, May 14th. Tune into CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.